0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, December 9th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Steve Poskanzer, Professor of Political Science and President Emeritus at Carleton College, and today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to preview the Supreme Court's 2022-23 term. The last few months have seen heightened focus and controversy surrounding the Supreme Court, especially in light of its landmark decision, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. The court is now in the midst of its 22-23 session, and in this episode of our program, we're going to focus on several of the most prominent cases on its current docket. My guest for this important show is Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. Professor Rosenstein joined the law school as a visiting professor in 2017 and in summer 2019 was promoted to associate professor. He is a senior editor at Lawfare, a term member of the Council of Foreign Relations, a member of the Scholars Strategy Network, and a visiting faculty fellow at the University of Nebraska College of Law. He was previously an affiliate with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. From October 2014 to April 2017, he served as an attorney advisor in the Office of Law and Policy in the National Security Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, where his work focused on operational, legal, and policy issues relating to cybersecurity and foreign intelligence. From October 2016 to April 2017, he served as a Special Assistant United States Attorney for the District of Maryland. During this time, he taught cybersecurity at Georgetown Law, and that's one of his specialties. Before joining the Justice Department, Professor Rosenstein clerked for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. While attending Harvard Law School, he was a Heyman Fellow, served as articles editor for the Harvard Law Review, and was a contributor to Lawfare. Prior to attending law school, he studied philosophy at Balliol College, University of Oxford, and he also did his undergraduate degree at Harvard as well. So he's a very distinguished guest who's joining me this morning. Alan, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's going to be a privilege to have this conversation together. And I know I just read off your official bio there, but would you just take a few moments to tell us a little bit more about how you chose to focus in your scholarship on cybersecurity law and especially constitutional law, which is what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Sure. So the, the cybersecurity interest uh, is really from my time at the Department of Justice. Um, I was very fortunate when I was in law school to work with. Uh, Jack Goldsmith, who's a leading scholar of national security, and through that I started working for for Lawfare, which at at the time was just a little blog and has now become, I like to thank the kind of premier source for national security legal analysis. Um, And so that got me into the national security space, and then when I ended up going to the Department of Justice, uh, they asked me sort of in my first week, um, you know, what kind of stuff do you want to work on? We have a bunch of counterterrorism stuff, and then we have a bunch of cyber stuff, and I thought to myself, well, I don't know. The Internet seems like it's a big deal, and it'll be around for a while, so, so let me try that. Um, and also, uh, you know, although my background is is in, in law and philosophy, and I studied history in undergraduate, I've always really had a love of, of math and, and technical subjects. I um, studied a lot of math kind of as an elective in undergrad. I was the, the weird history major who was taking all of his electives in, in the math department because I just liked it, and it was really interesting. And um, one of the things I loved about cybersecurity and still really love about it is that I think to do it well, um, even doing the law and policy stuff, you have to at least be willing to get down into the details. Uh, Obviously, you don't need to be a computer programmer, you don't need to be a network engineer, but you have to be willing to read an introductory textbook, frankly, on on how the internet works. Um, And so uh, that was something that really appealed to me and and let me kind of use that side of my brain that I think we don't always get to use in the law. And and frankly, it's something that um, when I teach cybersecurity at the University of Minnesota Law School, I really emphasize. Um, and one of the most kind of fun parts of teaching that class is taking a lot of students who, you know, think they're bad at math, who think they went to law school because they're bad at math, um, but actually who are perfectly good at math because they're good at logical thinking, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, I don't think you can if – you're, if you're a good law student, you're, you're good at this stuff. It doesn't matter whether it's words or, or numbers, frankly. And, and introducing some of that to them and seeing – them realize that actually you know it's interesting and they're and they're good at it so that that's the cybersecurity side. Um, as to the constitutional law side, again part of that is uh, just some interests I had in law school, um, some interests you know that I did in, in government. A lot of the work that I did, especially around surveillance, involved questions uh, around the Fourth Amendment. Absolutely. Um, and then really, I, you know I, the way I do scholarship. Uh, which I'm not sure I would necessarily – not, I'm not sure this is the advice I would give other junior scholars, but this is kind of what I've done because I, I don't know how to do it otherwise. I just follow my nose. I just, I just do things that are interesting to me. Uh, and constitutional law is very interesting, um, especially now, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about in the next Boy, we're at uh, sure a hour. moment right now where <laughs> the
0: court's at the sun of sure, things that are going on in the country and everybody wants to talk about constitutional law. So let's start with that. Um, How would you describe the current intellectual and ideological composition of the court? And I guess more specifically, do you think there's still a center pivot or swing vote? You know, for a while that was Justice O'Connor, then it became Justice Kennedy. Uh, Do we have that anymore on this court?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and, uh, I I think we don't, actually. I don't think there is a swing justice anymore. And and I think it's useful to kind of zoom out and, and talk about what we mean when we say swing justice. Um, Or or the pivot point, right? Um, You know, for a long time, the way you thought about the court, or the way people thought about the court, was to um, basically put all the justices on a line, from most liberal to most conservative. And obviously, it's not that simple. It's not just one dimension. But, you know, that is fundamentally how people thought about it. And as you pointed out, in the 1990s, Sandra Day O'Connor was the swing justice. And, you know, in a sense, it was the Sandra Day O'Connor court, right? The Chief Justice Rehnquist was the Chief Justice, but it was not his court, frankly. It was Sandra Day O'Connor's court. Um, and and you know, pro- advocates would get up and basically argue to her, to her, right, which was awkward because they're not supposed to do that. But everyone understood what was happening. And then in the two thousands, um, uh, the court. Turned a little more conservative, uh, and it was the the really the Kennedy Court. Sometimes it was actually the Roberts Court, the Chief Justice Roberts Court. You know, it was the Chief Justice, uh, for example, who um, sided with the liberals in upholding um, Obamacare. Obam- Obamacare. Um, at the same time, it was Justice Kennedy, obviously, who was the the key vote in in the the gay rights decisions, mm-hmm. um, culminating in, in the Obergefell decision that legalized or that that um, uh, constitutionalized the, the right to uh, to uh, same sex marriage. Um, I think what has happened in the last couple of years is that we've lost the swing justice. If you were to do this exercise today, listing the justices from left to right, you'd land on, I think, Justice Kavanaugh as the swing justice.
0: Yeah,
1: And you can imagine some situations where he really is the swing justice in the sense that he is the fifth vote. But I don't think anyone thinks of him as the swing justice. I don't think he thinks of himself as the swing justice. Um, really what you've had is a... A, a two-camp court, right? And, you, and there are different ways of thinking about it. You can think about it as you have three liberals and six conservatives. You can, have, you can think about it as you have three liberals plus one moderate institutionalist, the chief yes, justice. Roberts, and we'll talk right. about, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but either way, the majority of the court is conservative and, um, let's say, energetically so. Um, and within them, within that group, I think the key justice is Justice Thomas, not because his is necessarily the majority position. He's certainly not a swing justice. He is the most conservative justice, right? Um, though maybe we could argue about Absolutely. him maybe and Alito, but he's, right. he's up there. But I think he is the intellectual leader yeah. uh, of that. And so I think to the extent that it's anyone's court, and again, it's a query how useful it is to think in those terms. But to the extent that it is, I think it's the Thomas court, frankly. Yeah.
0: It may be. And ideas that he's argued for for a long time are getting a lot more play and a lot more credit on the court, whereas he's been often a voice in the wilderness, not so much anymore. Let's talk a little bit about Roberts. Um, Folks often describe him as an institutionalist, meaning that he has a special concern, as Chief Justice of the United States has to, for the court's reputation and integrity. And we maybe saw an example of that last term when it seemed like he was trying to avoid overturning Roe by issuing a narrow and less controversial ruling, and ideally, maybe getting Kavanaugh, as you were just saying, to come with him to you know preserve a maybe just a 15-week limit on abortion. Some commentators would say right now that Roberts has kind of lost control over the court and that Alito and Thomas are really the dominant figures. Does that sound right to you then? Th- that does
1: sound right. I, I would just say could have two things to just complicate that just a little bit. The first is I do think it's totally correct that Roberts has special institutional in, in, you know, considerations. in Part of that is because he is the chief justice. But I think it's more actually a matter of temperament um, than 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 even that. Um, at the same time, I, I don't want to overstate the kind of moderation of, of the chief justice. You know, he you know, he's taken a lot of controversial votes. He's written a lot of controversial opinions. He's basically eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. Um, which was, I don't know, I, I think not necessary uh, to uphold the institutional legitimacy of the And there of, may be more evisceration support.
0: yet to come, too. A- a-
1: a- absolutely, right? Absolutely. And we, we can talk about the affirmative action cases that are coming up. Um, but yes, I think as a general matter, it is fair to say he does have a special special concern. The question of whether he's lost the court is an interesting one. I'm not even sure he ever had the court. And I think this is something that is – is is. Um, Kind okay, of a frequent misunderstanding uh, about how the court works, but which is totally understandable. The chief justice is interesting. The Supreme, the, the Constitution, Article Three, does not actually set up anything except a chief justice, right? So it, theoretically, we could have just a chief justice of the United States who was the federal judicial branch. Now, obviously, <laughs> that wouldn't work. So we build the Supreme Court around them, the, the chief justice, and then we build lower courts. So it seems like the chief justice would be super important. The way it actually works is the chief justice simply one vote. His vote does not count for, anybody, for, for more than anyone else's vote. And the special power that the chief justice has is that when he is in the majority, he assigns the opinion. And that's important. But, of course, if he's not in the majority, he doesn't get to do anything. And the senior judge, justice in the majority gets to do that, which is increasingly Justice Thomas. So he's definitely lost. He, he, let's put it this way. He definitely does not have control over the court. Uh, it was never really his court to begin with, and the practice of thinking about courts in terms of their chief justices, the Roberts Court, the Rehnquist Court, the Burger Court, honestly, I think has not been relevant uh, since the Warren
0: Court. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, maybe when you had Warren with Brennan as his chief lieutenant, you had a court that was dominated by an individual, but really not since yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's a good transition as we start to talk about Roberts and affirmative action to move into the first of the three cases I want to focus on today. But first, I just want to remind listeners that we are at Public Policy this week at KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 from our studios in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer, and I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein from the University of Minnesota Law School about the Supreme Court's current term. So let's turn to three of the biggest cases before the court, and I'm going to start with one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is actually two cases together, Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina, and its companion case, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College. These paired cases are going to determine the future of race-based affirmative action in college admissions. SFFA, that's the acronym for the advocacy group that's mounted actually several prior challenges to affirmative action at different universities, is asserting that UNC, which of course is a public university, is violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. They're also contending that Harvard, a private university, is violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin by any educational program that's receiving money from the federal government. So that's how Harvard falls into the same hat. And of course, the standards for interpreting Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause historically have been the same standards. So let's start for our listeners with the most basic question. What do you think is fundamentally at stake in these two cases?
1: Obviously, there's the question about higher education admissions policies. But I think more deeply, what is at stake is what the 14th Amendment means. And I think the way to understand that is to divide views on the 14th 14th Amendment into basically two big buckets. Obviously, it's a complicated amendment, and there are lots of interpretations. Um, People make careers staking out tiny differences and stuff like that. But I think, roughly speaking, there are two ways of thinking about the 14th Amendment. One is what's called the anti-classification view. And the idea there is that according to the anti-classification view, what the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause in particular bans is the government treating you differently because of your race or some other protected uh, uh, category. It's a ban on racial classification. Under that view, um, it is difficult to justify affirmative action or at the very least to justify affirmative action requires an exceptionally good reason because simply by treating people differently on the basis of race or on the basis of ethnicity right um, you are prima facie violating the 14th amendment the equal protection clause and and therefore the the civil rights law Uh, and you better have an extraordinarily good reason to do so and I'm
0: going to interject here for one second just for our listeners there are good historical reasons behind this argument, right? I mean, there were distinctions drawn on the basis of race that profoundly ripped this country apart in terms of slavery and Jim Crow law. And so one argument would be we don't like to draw distinctions between people on the basis of race because
1: we've seen where that leads us. Exactly. And, and frankly, I think even people who support affirmative action will admit that the contemporary regime of how we classify people based on race and ethnicity, it's not ideal, right? There are a lot of very arbitrary Uh, Lines, especially as the country becomes more biracial and multiracial, um, not just in terms of diversity, but individuals having more complicated racial identities, which I think is a good thing from the perspective of of this country's future, um, it becomes kind of awkward to say, well, you're in this box, you're in that box. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think the, the, the slogan, one might say, for the anti classificationist is something that actually the Chief Justice wrote in an, an opinion of his uh, uh, several years ago, uh, and I, I'm not going to get the exact wording right, but it was something to the extent of the best way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Right, right. That is the bumper sticker version of the anti-classification view. The other view of the 14th Amendment, which I think is kind of more popular among l- legal academics... Um, uh, uh, is the, what's called the anti-subordination view. And under that view, the idea of equal protection is not specifically about classifying people on the basis of race, but it's about classifying people on the basis of race to subordinate them, right? It is about classifying people who are already marginalized so as to make them even more marginalized. And on that view, there's nothing inherently wrong in treating people differently on the basis of race if the reason you're doing it is to, let's say, repair a historical injustice or to promote diversity, for example, um, as has been the dominant understanding of affirmative action in, in U.S. constitutional law. Now, whether you whether the anti-classification or anti-subordination frame is the right one is a very complicated question. Um, and over the last several decades, this fight has largely played out in terms of questions of morality and questions of public policy. And there are lots of good arguments, I think, on both sides of this. What's I think become a little more complicated is that in the last 15 years or so, the Supreme Court has made a hard turn towards originalism, which is the idea that when interpreting the Constitution, we should interpret it according to its historical understanding. You know, When we're interpreting the Constitution, we should ask ourselves, what did James Madison think? What did Alexander Hamilton think? What did the people who ratified the Constitution think? There are all sorts of versions of that. Now, what's tricky in the 14th Amendment context is that it doesn't matter what James Madison or Alexander Hamilton thought, because, of course, that's not who wrote the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is a Civil, uh, civil War Reconstruction-era amendment, right? People like Thaddeus Stevens. Those are the people— who, Congressman Bingham. Exactly. Those are the people whose opinions we should care about. And there hasn't actually been a lot of judicial engagement in that historical question. And um, here you have the, the, I think, the politics a little bit reversed. Because there are a lot of progressive legal scholars who are pointing out that, well, if we're going to be originalist about it, then we have to understand that the context of the 14th Amendment was explicitly racial. America had just fought a long and bloody war and was continuing the fight in Reconstruction to safeguard the rights of newly freed blacks. Right, And so the idea that the 14th Amendment, uh, on an originalist understanding, would be race-blind is, let's put it this way, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, there are, there are, there are arguments in response to that. There, there's, there's a big debate here. But my only, my only point is it will be very interesting to see whether the commitment of the justices to originalism leads them to potentially swallow policy results that, as conservatives, which is very different than originalists, they don't like
0: You know, the whole point of originalism, and we can talk about this probably for hours, um, it's almost like we're all originalists now. You know, Nixon joked in the 70s, everybody was a Keynesian. There's so many different meanings to originalism, but I think you're exactly right that moving in this direction would lead to results that you would not expect from an originalist. Let's drive a little deeper from 14th Amendment in general to colleges and universities in particular. (coughs) Does the Equal Protection Clause require colorblindness? I mean, that really is the fundamental question here. Or can universities legitimately take the race of applicants into account in order to achieve the educational benefits that they believe would come from a diverse student body? Under classic Equal Protection Clause analysis, and this is the classification scheme that you were talking about, when the government or a private party getting federal money under Title VI is drawing these potentially problematic distinctions between people on the basis of race, those distinctions need to be narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Do the educational benefits that
1: flow from a diverse student body meet that standard? What do you think? These are not questions that have objective scientific answers. These are ultimately value judgments. What we can say is that the court over the last several decades... Has generally said that diversity is a sufficient, compelling interest. Now, that, of course, doesn't end the inquiry, because uh, that's still, there are still limitations on what colleges can do to achieve diversity. So, for example, um, numerical quotas, the, the court has told us, are not prohibited, but holistic evaluation is allowed. I think there's a question about what does that mean in the details, um, <clears throat> And
0: this think, is the narrow tailoring. This is the narrow tailoring, and,
1: and and so you know we we could have we could have this debate about in particular, let's say Harvard's admissions um, within this category, and you could imagine Harvard losing uh, on its current practices without necessarily upending affirmative action law. You know, I think one of the um, how do I put it? Um, one of the more unpleasant details for Harvard is, frankly, the treatment within the Harvard admission system of of, of Asian. Uh, of Asian students, right? Who systematically get their personality scores somewhat downgraded. That's not a great look, frankly, for for Harvard. And there, Harvard has its responses and, and things of that nature. But um, I, I think that there is a lot of concern among the conservative justices and also just among other folks, frankly, uh, that um, uh, you know the 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 colleges have been told you can be holistic, and they're not really being that holistic, frankly. Um, you. Know, the other thing I would say is. And, and this is an unfortunate place where I think the, the culture war impinges a little bit on what we sometimes like to think of as the kind of hallowed abstract grounds of Supreme Court decision making. I think a lot of the conservative justices just don't trust higher education anymore. Um, I, I think that over the last several years, um, and we can, this is a whole separate debate, um, there has at least been a perception, and we can, can debate whether it's true, but there's certainly been a perception that colleges have moved very much to the left, mm-hmm. that they've become much less intellectually and academically open. And that when colleges talk about diversity, they're not being—they're not—they don't really care. about It's not diversity really that they're interested in, because if it was, they'd be interested in diversity generally. But what they're really interested in is is a particular kind of racial balancing, which the courts have told colleges not to do. So um, uh, I, you know, I do think that that uh, uh, one potential outcome is where the courts—and this, you know—I think if Chief Justice—if this was Chief Justice Roberts's court, I think the outcome would probably be. UNC and especially Harvard get uh, slapped down, frankly, for what, what they're doing it and everyone has to go back to the drawing board uh, and, and actually be more holistic and actually be more interested in actual, you know, in, in more fuller conceptions of diversity. I, I don't think that's where the rest of the conservatives are, are going to go, though.
0: I, I think that's probably right. I mean, when I listened to the oral arguments, which were somewhat ironically on Halloween, um, you know, I was a bit surprised that several of the justices did seem to focus a little bit more on Title VI than I thought they might, maybe even opening the door to a ruling that would strike down affirmative action practices under that law, but not necessarily reach the equal protection, this could never be a compelling state interest issue. If they were to do that, that would be what some constitutional scholars would call a prudential approach to the case, trying to decide this on the narrowest possible grounds, saying, you know, what Harvard is doing is wrong, but we don't have to reach this broader question. Any chance you think they might go there?
1: I would be really very skeptical uh, of this. I mean, these justices have been thinking about these issues for a very long time. They have very strong views um, about these issues. It would just be, I would be very surprised if they, if they kind of pulled their punch Mm -hmm. here, especially given that they have demonstrated that they are more than happy to reverse precedent and make constitutional opinions on uh, very controversial uh, topics. So
0: if Roe v. Wade is on the table and can be overturned, the Bakke case, which was really only, you know, it's a split court in any number of ways, and it really only was Powell's singular opinion that had any weight there, and Grutter from 2003, those are much more recent precedents than Fisher even after that. If you're going to throw out Roe, you might easily throw out Grutter and its progeny as well
1: that's right and, and it's it, a part of it is that it's more recent but part of that it, it's also it's just less popular and this is a, a really important point that I think people should, should reflect on more the Supreme Court is not immune to to public opinion um, that doesn't mean they act in accordance with it but it's definitely in the back of these folks minds and you know judges justices like celebrities are just like us right they, they all read this we all read the same newspapers um, we, you know we see the same poll results um, Roe or the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe was so striking in part because Roe was quite popular among Americans and certainly the substantive protections for abortion uh, before viability or the first 15 weeks, first trimester basically, is very, very, very popular among, among Americans. Um, affirmative action is not. And, and importantly, it's not just not popular among white Americans. It's not popular among Asian Americans, it's not popular among Latino Americans who have been the prime beneficiaries of it over the last several decades, and most strikingly, it's basically 50-50 split among black Americans. Yeah. Now, to be clear, the rightness, either morally or legally, of a policy does not depend on whether it's popular or not. But I think that if the you know the court issued Dobbs, it's seen the result, right? Not great for Republicans, but hardly the end of the world. and I don't know, the court's doing okay. I just don't think that uh, if, they, if they were, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to let public opinion, which frankly I think is almost on their side, uh, stop them from, uh, from ending affirmative action, yeah. or at least deeply constraining it. Though I think there might still be some, even the most conservative justices might allow a little bit of it through, and we can talk about that if you want.
0: Okay, I think we know what, You would predict what's going to happen here, and I actually think your prediction is the right prediction, too. I think that's where they're likely to end up. Uh, You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanser. I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School about the Supreme Court's current term. Alan, let's shift to another case that's been in the news a fair amount, Moore v. Harper. Uh, What's going on here is that the North Carolina Supreme Court tossed out a congressional election map that was adopted by the conservative North Carolina legislature, and in doing this, the court held that this type of partisan gerrymandering violated the North Carolina Constitution. Now, that document, the North Carolina Constitution, guarantees citizens substantially equal voting power and substantially equal legislative representation, as well as their right to free elections. The Supreme Court of North Carolina's decision did not end this battle. The North Carolina legislature is still fighting, and now the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not the state court's ruling violates what's known as the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution. That's for those following with the scoreboard here. That's Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. And the election clause provides that, quote, the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Let's start with my general question. What's fundamentally at stake in this case? And can you give our listeners a brief account of what the independent state legislature doctrine is?
1: Sure. So let me first say what's not at stake in this case, because... Of all the cases before the Supreme Court, not just this term, but of the last few terms, I think this is the most misunderstood case. There's been a lot of reporting that this case is about whether or not legislatures can override their state popular votes for president. This, and that is not what this case is about. This case is not about the question of whether or not, you know, Joe Biden could win in Arizona and then the Arizona legislature could decide that, eh, we're going to give the, our electoral college votes to Ron DeSantis or Trump or, 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 or whomever. Um, that is foreclosed by the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause. No one thinks that's on the table. It's really important to just be clear about that. However, this is still a really important case. Because what's at stake here is the ability of state courts to police what state legislatures do when they decide on the rules For federal elections in those states, in those states. That's what that's about. Um, And if you think, for example, that gerrymandering is really bad, if you think, for example, that we should have a lot of early voting or no early voting or this rule or that rule, right, Um, then this case is about whether or not the state courts have any role to play in policing what the legislature does. Right Either in interpreting the legislative language or in potentially overriding the legislative uh, decision under the state constitutions, now the independent state legislature doctrine is an interpretation of that language of the Constitution that you read at the beginning of this of this section, um, and it's a particular interpretation that takes the word state legislatures very literally um, uh, rather than how I think it's generally been understood as. Really referring to just states, um, because of course state legislatures are uh, creatures of state constitutions, and state constitutions therefore presumably can have whatever separation of powers that they want to set up within the state governments themselves um, and by you know historical practice, state courts have played an important role, just as federal courts have played an important role <clears throat> now, the first Intimation of what's been called what's come to be called the independent state legislature doctrine uh, was in uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush v. Gore, the famous 2000 case that we all like to pretend never happened, including Uh, the Supreme Court. Including the Supreme Court. Yeah, it it is a bizarre it is a bizarre case uh, because it's incredibly important and kind of we just all agreed to just. Pretend like it never happened. Um, and that case was was actually, in some sense, about whether or not the Florida courts were messing with the Florida legislature's standards for counting ballots and hanging chads, and, and I won't bore you with, with all of that. Um, uh, and, and Chief Justice Rehnquist, kind of as an aside, said, by the way, the Constitution says that the state legislature... Gets to decide this. So what, what is the Florida court doing freelancing here? But that was just in a concurrence. That really wasn't binding or anything. So this is a new doctrine, essentially. It, it's a, it, not just that. It's not just a new doctrine. But then it went totally silent for two decades and then came back up in 2020. Because of the combination of a very litigious Trump campaign and covid which scrambled a lot of state election policies and, and did, to be fair, to proponents of this doctrine, lead to some potentially aggressive readings by certain state courts about, well, you know, the state legislature says that we're going to have this much early voting, but we've just decided because of COVID it should be th- three times as much early voting or whatever the case is. Um, <clears throat> you started seeing courts and even some justices mention this as, hey, this is an actual part of the Constitution. Um, and now we're taking this, this step. The, the, issue, the question, I think, is, um, is not whether or not the court will recognize this doctrine. I, I think it will, because it is in the Constitution, and we are all originalists, and we are all textualists, right? Mm-hmm. It's how much will it, will it recognize it? There's a maximalist view, which is what the North Carolina legislature is arguing, which says that whatever the legislature says, that's it. That's all that matters.
0: Legislature means legislature, legislature and
1: nothing else. Nothing else. And it doesn't matter if the, what the legislature does is flatly unconstitutional under the state constitution. For purposes of federal elections, they get to do what they want. Um, I think that it's unlikely that, this, that the court will adopt that view um, because um, I think it would just lead to some real potential problems. It lead to a lot of chaos. Um, and also, uh, it's quite ahistorical. There is a long tradition of state courts intervening here. Um, there's a more medium position, which I would guess is probably what, what will prevail, which is that state courts can, let's say, overturn what a state legislature says, but only if the uh, the state constitution is quite clear uh, about the fact that what the state legislature is doing is unconstitutional. So, so if, for example, um, the state legislature... Passes a redistricting plan. And then the state Supreme Court says, under our reading of the state constitution, which requires fairness and equality, we have decided that political gerrymanders are unconstitutional. There you can imagine the Supreme Court saying, uh, that's 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 not that's not OK. You've you've interpreted your state constitution, but you've kind of just made up a rule because you've decided that's what you want. And there, we're not going to allow you to do that. In which case, I think this will be an interesting, but not that important of a
0: case. And this North Carolina Constitution actually is pretty precise in some of these places, right? Mm-hmm. So you could imagine, under that second possible approach, that the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision ultimately does get upheld, then? It,
1: it does get upheld, but if, it's, but if the reasoning that it's upheld is, we uphold this because the, this Constitution is actually quite clear... Um, we wouldn't uphold it or we reserve for later the decision of whether we'd uphold it. Uh, And and I I suspect this my guess would be that this was will be how it comes out.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was sort of interesting to me that the court chose to grant cert to take up this case. Um, Some people think that they're taking this case because they want to embrace that very narrow legislature means legislature. Some people wonder whether they're taking up this case to stick a fork in the whole doctrine. You're adopting sort of a middle ground between the two of those.
1: I, I am. And to go back to your original question about what kind of court is this, I think this is where when you count count votes, um, you can easily see at least a 5-4 for that position. The three liberals will definitely not adopt the maximalist vision. I don't think chief, the chief justice will. And Justice Kavanaugh I don't think will either. He, he, he has, I think, similar kind of moderate-ish – Tendencies that the chief does.
0: You know, I think you're right. It's really interesting. Despite all the controversy that surrounded Kavanaugh's appointment, there really is a pretty strong case to be made that he is more moderate than the other Trump appointees and could become a critical player. I, I,
1: yeah, I think, I think there's no question that he's more moderate. Um, uh, that's, of course, separate than all the controversy around his appointment. Agreed.
0: I think so, too. One last question in this realm, just mostly mostly aimed at our listeners. Is there a constitutional right to vote and is there a right to have your vote counted the same as anybody else's vote?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting this is an interesting question. Um what there's certainly there, there's much more of a right to have your vote counted like anybody else than there is a freestanding right to vote, which is an interesting There's interesting. nothing, in
0: the, there's nothing in the constitution that says
1: right? And again, there's there's nothing in the constitution that requires legislatures to um Have popular votes for you know the, the for uh for 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 president, for example, right um, what there is though is the idea of one person one vote, which is the main uh limitation on the you know the the fact that districts have to be roughly equal, and there 's also just basic equal protection principles that obviously your vote can 't be restricted on the basis of of race or of uh, of gender, though that, that's that's the Nineteenth Amendment, um, uh, or of uh, you know economic uh, position. Um, but but America was never founded on the idea that every individual has has a right to vote. That has been a a democratic uh, uh, transition um, that is still ongoing. That's
0: right. Cases. And the court has been very hands off in terms of partisan gerrymandering as that's opposed right. to race based gerrymandering.
1: It's getting increasingly hands-off on race-based gerrymandering as well, but it at least recognizes that that is the sort of thing that the court can deal with, whereas with partisan gerrymandering, in a recent opinion, Rucho versus Common Cause, the chief justice, uh, and this is an interesting example of, of, of uh, a, a version of institutional thinking, uh, said, no, the courts don't, don't – we don't interfere with partisan gerrymandering because that would uh, essentially drag us into the political muck.
0: Right. It's a political do question exactly. doctrine that they don't want to get into. Uh, you're listening to Public Policy This Week at KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1 from our studios here in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer from Carleton College, and I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota about the Supreme Court's current term. There's one more big case I want to make sure we talk about before we move into some closing things, and that's 303 Creative v. Alanis. This is a case involving the owner of a graphic design firm who refuses to design websites for same-sex weddings because she believes that same-sex marriage conflicts with God's will. She's challenging a Colorado law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against gay people or announcing their intent to do so. Let's start with a basic question here. Um, Many listeners probably recall the 2018 Masterpiece Cake Shop, where the court upheld a challenge to this same Colorado law, and in that case, the Supreme Court held that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission displayed impermissible hostility to sincerely held religious beliefs, and that the plaintiff was entitled to a hearing before a neutral decision maker. So how's this case different from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case?
1: Well, Master Keep, Masterpiece Cake Shop was a procedural question. This is a substantive question. This is about, let's assume that the hearing was fine and the, the decision maker didn't have any uh, impermissible anti-religious animus. As a matter of, in this case, First Amendment law, um, can an individual be forced to, uh, to produce creative products um, to the extent that web design is a creative process or has elements of creativity in it, obviously, um, if that conflicts with uh, First Amendment rights, both religious rights and, and expressive rights. This is an interesting case because it kind of combines those 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 two uh, issues.
0: Yeah, so really, I, w- I spoke earlier about prudential decisions by the court where they try and dodge hard issues. They kind of dodged the issue in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Now it's squarely before them.
1: That, that's right, and a, a lot of people, a lot of you know, Supreme Court watchers were somewhat disappointed um, in the resolution of Masterpiece Cake Shop because it didn't it didn't really get at the answer. The facts in Masterpiece Cake Shop were, were not great. Uh, the, 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 the The commission was not behaving properly, and 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 uh, uh, that at least was a foregone conclusion. So we've had to wait another four years for the real answer. So
0: fundamentally, this case then involves striking or trying to strike an appropriate balance between the right to freely exercise one's religion. And the government's desire to promote equality and to prevent discrimination is that a tension that can ever be definitively resolved, or is that something we 're always going to wrestle with and have always wrestled with as a society i
1: i, I don 't think it can be resolved i i and, and this gets to a, a very deep question um, a very philosophical question about um, is there is there one right answer to moral disputes that we can all agree on? Or is there just some underlying inevitable pluralism where if you're going to have a big, diverse, free society, people are just going to think differently about fundamental questions of um, of what the good life is, what sexual expression requires, what religion requires. Um, I, I tend to think that, Pluralism is just a fact of life, especially in a, a big, messy country like ours. And so it all comes down to uh, what the right balance is. Um, and uh, you know, this is what this case is about, I think.
0: We've tended to strike that balance more in the
1: direction of liberty over time, wouldn't you say? I, I think that we have – certainly I think the court has, in the last decade or so, signaled that it cares – a lot more about religious liberty than perhaps was the case in the past. I mean, there's a very famous case, I believe from the 90s, called Employment Division versus Smith, in which Justice Scalia, Scalia, right, not a liberal, but Justice Scalia actually said that basically you don't have a religious liberty claim against um, sort of generally applicable laws. Um, and this was one of the opinions that he is uh, most uh, that, that, that are most con- controversial from the perspective of conservatives who tend to like Justice Scalia.
0: Smith's a hated opinion. They in hate those that. They
1: hate that opinion. I mean, I understand why, actually, right? Um, it, it seems to give the First Amendment or the Religion Clause a kind of secondhand status. Um, and so I think what we're seeing in the in a new generation of conservative justices trying to repudiate that. So you know, I, the, the question, I think, is, is not so much, will the court recognize that there's a legitimate religious interest here? It's it's how much will it recognize it? And again, as with so many cases, there are maximalist and more moderate moderate versions of how much.
0: And on the other side of this case, whereas I think you're right, the free exercise clause seems to be ascendant in many directions. Um, can you explain to our listeners the level of protection typically that LGBTQIA individuals would have under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause? It's not treated the same right now as race has been treated under that clause. And might that make
1: a difference in this case? It, it is not treated the same way that, that race is, um, though I think increasingly, both as a social level, and, and I think here again it's important to recognize the general political background – you know, as we record, and maybe by the time we actually even this this comes out, um, the Congress may have passed the I think Respect for Marriage Act, mm-hmm. um, with en- enormous conservative support, including from the Mormon Church, um. So so although it is true that LGBTQ rights are not doctrinally protected to the level of of. Of race, um, they still get quite a bit of protection, and even conservative justices are willing to to do that. I mean, just uh, I think two terms ago, uh, Justice Gorsuch, another conservative, mm. read the Civil Rights Law to protect not just uh, sexual orientation but gender identity. Um, uh, so, so I don't think what is going to determine this is necessarily the level of protection for LGBTQ rights. What I think will determine this is whether or not the court thinks that this level of um, anti-discrimination law is necessary for the purpose here, um, and I, I think what's notable is what we're talking about is um, a service that is important, but is perhaps somewhat less important than uh, public transport, you know, than transportation or, or lodgings, which has been an area of, of an, or, or uh, uh, um, uh, you know, housing supply, which has obviously been an area of anti-discrimination law. And I think also it 's important to note here that um, i don 't think the argument is that um, this individual has some sort of monopoly over um, web you know, wedding design services
0: that 's where I was going to go. This is not the only place you can go to get a website designed, and that is a little bit different from you know the civil rights cases where you know you 're Out-of-state traveler, and there's one hotel in town, there's one barbecue restaurant where you can get food, and nobody will serve you, this maybe is a little different? I
1: I think it's different, and and I I think there is even a sense among even some liberals and progressives, and even some some gay and lesbian individuals, that this might be a bit of overreach. Not that we don't need anti-discrimination law, but that it may not be worth... Applying it to literally every single small business owner um, for things like this—that—that that, um, you may end up creating honestly more backlash and bad feelings uh, than if you just said, "Look, we're going to provide certain fundamental equal protection uh, and anti-discrimination rights, the you know, right to employment, for example." Um, but maybe we need to go quite this far, and so I could I could imagine the court um, w- ruling. In favor of the uh, the website designer here, um, on quite narrow grounds, right? Saying, "Look, we're we're all about anti discrimination law. We're we're all about this, but when you do the balancing, going after this person, it's just not it's not worth it. It's not necessary."
0: Maybe this is one that we're not going to get a five four decision, but maybe even a six three. I, I could side. I
1: could easily imagine that. I, I, honestly, I could imagine even an eight two decision. Uh, sorry, a, a seven two decision with um, Alito
0: and Thomas being the last two, or
1: no, 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 with Justice Kagan joining. Justice Kagan has, and we, you know, we haven't talked about her, and and you know, it's unfortunate. She's a, a brilliant justice, but is kind of in this funny mode where she's in the minority and. Um, uh, she has some conservative inclinations, uh, sort of small C conservative inclinations, and they pop out sometimes. Um, so I could, I could imagine her signing on a concurring in the judgment, for example, saying, look, just to be clear, I'm, I'm all for uh, you know, gay rights and anti-discrimination law. But in this case, the balancing is just, this is a little, this is unnecessary, given that this person really does seem to have sincere religious views that, objectionable as they may be to this or that person or you know, whatever, um, it's a religious view.
0: Um, I know we're starting at close to the end of time, but I want to throw one more question at you. What other cases are you especially interested in this term that there are two pretty interesting Communication Decency Act cases coming up? I'd love to hear your views
1: yeah. on those. So I think the sleeper hit of this term, I'm biased because it's in my field, but I think it's really important actually for all of us, are two cases, uh, uh, Tamina versus Twitter and um, Google versus Gonzalez, basically the same case. Um, and they are about whether or not... Um, large tech companies can be sued for uh, amplifying content that leads to terrorist violence. They both involve a terrorist attack in uh, Paris in uh, 2014 or 15, um, in which several people died, two of whom are Americans. Um, And both of those families sued the social media companies for essentially amplifying uh, ISIS content, the Islamic State content. No one's alleging that Google and Twitter are trying to support ISIS in some direct way, but the algorithm does what it does. Um, and so they're saying you were, you were negligent. And in particular, you, you are liable under what's called the Anti-Terrorism uh, Act, which is a special statute that provides a civil cause of action for people um, who believe that they were uh, uh, harmed for uh, terrorism, terrorism-related uh, activities. Now, on the other hand, there's a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of uh, 1996, which is... I think it's safe to say the single most important piece of internet legislation that has ever been passed. Because what it does is it immunizes, as a general matter, platforms from uh, content that their users create. And this was a hugely important law when it was passed because it was meant to protect the nascent, the then-nascent internet. Of course, the internet is not so nascent anymore, yeah. right? This, it's all Twitter and Google's world. We just live in it. Right. Um, and there's been a huge amount of controversy, both from the left and from the right, about whether or not... This law is appropriate anymore, or whether it shields these companies too much. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, people are worried that if we get rid of this law, then the companies will be inundated with lawsuits, and they will end up censoring massive amounts of content because they're too scared to have it on. Sure. So, in the process of answering this question that uh, whether the Anti-Terrorism Act still allows uh, liability, the court is going to have to grapple with, and for the first time ever, actually, it's been. 25 years. This is the first time they've interpreted the statute. What does Section 230 actually mean? Um, and so uh, between this and and some other cases that the court might hear this year or next year about state regulation of, of social media platforms, this is going to be a fantastically important and interesting term for for the the, uh, the, the Internet. And so those, those are the ones I'm, I'm real excited about.
0: Here's one more question that leaps to my mind as I look at the 22-23 term. Uh, we spoke earlier about the personnel on the court, and it's always changing, but there is one new member of the court, and that's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, what do you think her role is likely to be, and how active and how much of an intellectual force on the court might she become over time?
1: I think she's actually already established herself as both an active member of the court, uh, on her first at-bat, she asked a bunch of questions, very engaged, uh, um, asked, I think, you know, even more questions than your average first argument justice uh, does. Um, I think she's been uh, totally unafraid to uh, write dissents and, and get in there. Um, I think she brings uh, diversity to the court, and obviously not just representationally, um, but also just in what her background is. She's a defender. Um, uh, and that's something that's that's quite unusual for sort of elite elite judges and justices. Can you think of any other justice who worked as a public defender? I'm struggling. I, I think she's the f- first. Um, I mean, I I, th- I think she's the first. Um, you know, obviously Justice Sotomayor worked as a district court judge, and I think you know had a uh, experience thinking about things from the defendant's point of view. But I I think uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson is the first uh, uh, public defender. Obviously, she is not going to change the ideological composition of, of the court. I think she's probably, it's fair to say, to the left of her former employer, Justice Justice Breyer. But those distinctions don't, frankly, matter um, when we're talking about a big 6-3 split. But I think that, you know, just as it took Justice Thomas, frankly, uh, a decade or two decades to um, to make his mark, um, I think there's a kind of a long game that uh, Judge Jackson uh, uh, could be playing. Um, there's a... There's a um, uh, there's a great phrase that dissents are, are you know really messages to the future um and uh justice thomas has demonstrated that um and i think justice jackson could could demonstrate uh could demonstrate that uh, as well so again i don't think we should expect her to uh make you know an enormous jurisprudential splash anytime soon just because of she won't have the opportunity to, um, though it will be fun, you know, when she gets her first couple of opinions just to, you know, there are always enough nine zero decisions that junior justices get some chances, you know, see how she writes and how she thinks. But, you
0: know, you made an observation earlier that I think is important that listeners should also bear in mind that different issues will bring out different aspects of where judges are and you can't always know people are not unitary and their approach to everything. Can you imagine issues where Jackson will be either more liberal or more conservative than some of her peers?
1: I, I, I don't know, um, but I certainly can imagine that there might be some issues like that. Um, and and, and you know, some of them might be based on demographic factors. I mean, one thing that's notable about Justice Thomas is that he has been, in some sense, the most racially conservative of the justices. Um, and some of that, I, I think, is due to his own experiences um, how, you know, his own lived experience, right, as a black man, um, and he interpreted it in a particular way. Um, I think Judge Jackson has her own, obviously, lived experience of, of, uh, of being black, and uh, that will shape, uh, you know, her, her rulings uh, one way or, or, or the other. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, again, just who she replaced. So she replaced Justice Breyer, who was generally considered a very liberal justice, except on uh, criminal procedure mm-hmm. issues, where he had this interesting conservative streak. Um, and you kind of never know. So we'll have to see over the years whether there are some areas in which uh, Justice Jackson has her conservative streak in the way that there are areas in which uh, a Justice Gorsuch, for example, has surprising liberal streaks. Um, but I think it is important, you know, as we think about liberal justices, and conservative justices or Trump justices and Biden justices. They contain multitudes, for better That's or right. for worse. They contain
0: multitudes, and the cases that present themselves bring out some of those variations in their interpretation. That's exactly right. Well, you know, you look at all this together, and while the Dobbs decision made last year seemed like supreme court was at the center of everything that's going on i think we're going to see a lot more debates about what the supreme court's decisions are and what its role and what the constitution means and i'm I'm
1: always happy to come back to
0: northfield to talk about it we will make that happen i promise you Uh, another hour has just flown by here which i feared would be the case Uh, utterly fascinating conversation alan i really want to thank you for your time your expertise and the good spirits and thanks for driving down today Uh, This concludes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. Again, we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, every Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Please tell your family and friends about Public Policy This Week. We want this show to serve as a catalyst for important, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. Together, we want to seek comprehensive, integrated solutions to the many challenges we face in our society. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from KYMNradio.net.